It's Friday 21st of July and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, we'll be hearing about El Nino, global warming and risks to agricultural commodities, and an exclusive clip from our client briefing all about that UK CPI report. But now, Neil's out this week, but I'm happily joined by Jack Allen Reynolds, who's our Deputy Chief Eurozone Economist. Hi there, Jack. Hi, David. So we've got an ECB meeting this coming Thursday. It's just a day after the Fed delivers what we think is going to be the last rate hike in its tightening cycle. On that note, can we start by discussing the greedy beast? What is the greedy beast and what's the ECB going to be doing about it this coming Thursday? Well, the greedy beast is, of course, inflation. And the greedy beast is the term that the head of Germany's central bank has been using recently to describe the Eurozone's inflation problem. Now, the European Central Bank has more or less told us what they're going to do. So a 25 basis point rate hike looks a near certainty. Now, of course, we have had a few surprises from other central banks in recent months, but I think in the ECB's case, it really would be a big shock if they did anything other than raise rates by 25 basis points. Instead, I think there's going to be more focus on the messaging and the updated guidance that the ECB wants to give. And as a quick reminder, the, the ECB has been in a bit of an odd situation recently where policymakers have insisted that they're not giving guidance, but almost in the same breath, they've been giving us guidance, telling us what they expect to do at the next meeting, and in some cases, the next several meetings. But I think that period of guidance, non-guidance is probably over. Policymakers seem much less confident about what they're going to do now than they have been over, say, the past 12 months. What I don't think is that that's a sign that they're at the end of the tightening cycle. I think it just reflects genuine uncertainty. I think it's also worth noting that if you look back at the history of tightening cycles, central banks have tended not to know when they've reached the end of their tightening cycles. So we won't necessarily know when the ECB is finished until several months after interest rates have peaked. So rather than telling us exactly what they intend to do at the following meeting in September, we expect them to emphasize that wherever interest rates peak, monetary policy is going to remain tight for a prolonged period of time. And we at Capital Economics have penciled in one further interest rate hike after July, which would leave the ECB's key deposit rate at a peak of 4%. And we then think that they'll leave interest rates at the peak for probably around a year until the second half of 2024. You touched on this uncertainty, and I want to ask about Klaus Knopf, the Dutch central bank head. He was in the headlines the last few days. Comments taken to reflect some unease among the hawks on the governing council. Uh, he's very much associated with, with that group. Can you talk about the dynamics on the council? Is it strictly hawks versus doves? Or are some hawks turning a bit dovey as, as the narrative shifts uh, and the uncertainty which you talk about prevails? Well, I think obviously there are a, a range of views across the governing council. There are 26 people on the council after all. Um, and there are some who are typically more hawkish and those who are typically more dovish. Um, if we look back over the past 12 months or so, there has been a pretty strong consensus on the governing council about the correct um, course of action. Um, over that period, the ECB's raised its um, key policy rate from minus 0.5% to plus 3.5%. 
And of course, it's very likely to raise that to 3.75% at its meeting this month. Now, that's a record pace of tightening and a record scale of tightening from the ECB, but that just reflects the scale of the inflation problem. But I think there's a good chance that that consensus might start to break down soon. And that's because the correct path for policy is not as obvious now. On the one hand, we've got high core inflation, which is still showing no signs of falling in the Eurozone, and the labor market looks strong. But on the other hand, the headline inflation rate has more or less halved since it peaked towards the end of last year and is going to fall further. We know that the impact of lower commodity prices is still going to feed through bringing down energy and food inflation, but that's also going to feed through to lower core inflation, i.e. the inflation rate excluding energy and food, because it'll reduce the cost of meals out or the cost of public transport, for example. And if we look globally, there's been a significant improvement in the global supply chain. Of course, the problems last year were a factor driving up inflation. Those problems now seem to have largely resolved themselves. And so that should put some downward pressure on core inflation this year. But again, if, if we look at where policy rates are now, they're a long way above most estimates of neutral. And I think if we take a step back from the details of the inflation numbers, we can look at the fact that interest rates in the Eurozone are already a long way above most estimates of neutral. So policy is already in contractionary territory and the economy is weakening. The Eurozone's in a mild recession and leading indicators point to further weakness. The money and credit data are particularly weak. Money growth has fallen off a cliff. And of course, over the past few years, it's been those monetary economists who were pointing at the surge in money growth during the pandemic as the sign that inflation was going to surge, well, now money growth has collapsed. That could be a sign that inflation is about to collapse too. And a third reason why it's going to become more difficult for the ECB is that it's trying to balance various objectives. It's got its price stability objectives, but it's also going to be concerned about economic growth, financial stability, and to a lesser extent, climate change. Let's stay on that economic growth objective. Some of the commentary on ECB strategy going into this tightening cycle brought up those infamous rate hikes in 2008-2011 under Trichet, which are just before global and regional financial crises. The ECB is unique among the major central banks in that it's raising rates in a recession. Talk about this downturn. Talk about the impact of this tightening, the impact of tightening that's yet to be felt. I mean, Another 50 basis points, even another 25 basis point in, in rate hikes, surely that's going to make things even worse, isn't it? Well, yes, as you mentioned, the Eurozone is already in recession. So in Europe, we use the definition of recession as two consecutive quarters of contraction in GDP. And that matters. It means the economy is producing less. It means households and firms are earning and spending less. But it isn't the only thing that matters. In fact, it's far from the only thing that matters. Um, if we compare the European Central Bank with the US Fed, for example, the ECB does not have a dual mandate. Its primary objective is price stability, is that 2% inflation target. And it only thinks about its other goals if inflation is under control, which it isn't. And of course, tighter monetary policy, which the ECB has been implementing, works by weakening demand. So the European Central Bank probably wants to see weaker growth, whether that's below trend growth or perhaps a mild recession. Because the, the big picture in the Eurozone is that as well as very high energy prices, strong demand has been driving inflation. 
The labor market is very tight. Wage growth is very strong. That's been driving up firms' costs. And since they haven't wanted to reduce their profit margins, they've been pushing up their prices. And so that's this idea of a wage profit price spiral that policymakers are particularly worry, worried about. And the ECB wants to break that spiral. And it does that by weakening demand. It makes it more expensive to borrow. It means that interest spending eats up a greater share of incomes. And it also increases the returns on saving rather than spending. So the idea is that that would generate weaker demand, take some of the heat out of the labor market, and weaken inflationary pressure. So to a certain extent, the ECB wants a weaker economy, whether it's willing to admit that or not. Now, we are forecasting the Eurozone economy to remain in recession. Now, that's more pessimistic than just about any other forecaster, and certainly more pessimistic than the official ECB forecasts. But that's probably what's going to be needed to ease those demand pressures and bring inflation down. Because without a period of economic weakness, it could be very difficult for the ECB to hit its inflation target. Having said all of that, that doesn't mean that this is easy. The ECB doesn't want to tighten too much, and it doesn't want to tighten too little. And it's also tricky politically. While obviously the ECB is, in theory, independent of governments, it doesn't operate in a vacuum. And raising interest rates during a cost of living squeeze is going to be tricky politically and could mean that the ECB faces mounting attacks from politicians across the Eurozone. That was Jack Allen Reynolds on the ECB's tricky fight against the greedy beast. Jack will be joining our UK and US teams for a drop-in. That's one of our short-form webinars after the ECB decision on Thursday, where they'll also be discussing what the Fed did on Wednesday and previewing the Bank of England meeting on August 3rd. Event registration details on the podcast page. We've also got an online briefing coming Thursday on whether China's in a balance sheet recession. It's a live debate around the China macro outlook and you'll want to join that discussion. It's 9 a.m. London, 4 p.m. Singapore time. As with all our online briefings, if that doesn't work for you, go ahead and register anyway. We'll send you a copy of the recording as soon as it's concluded. Now, India announced curbs on rice exports late Thursday. Just hours earlier, Caroline Bain, our chief commodities economist, was discussing with climate economics head David Oxley how this was a risk as governments grapple with growing impacts of weather disruption and global warming. Their conversation was about El Nino's return and what that means for economies and markets, and you can hear that now. It begins with Caroline explaining what El Nino is and why it's a threat to commodities output. It's a weather phenomenon that comes around every every sort of five to seven years. It's essentially the warming of the waters in the East Pacific Ocean, and it has major implications for weather. So typically it brings heavy rains, flooding sometimes to the eastern side of Latin America, and brings dry conditions to much of Asia, Southeast Asia, parts of India and China. So it has obviously implications for agricultural commodities, but also perhaps less obviously for the mining sector and for energy demand. So one thing I've I've taken from all your research, Caroline, is you stress that El Nino, the impacts are not always discernible at an economic or even commodity level. That's right. Um, looking at looking at the impact at a global level, um, it it isn't very discernible. Um, that's partly because there are actually regions of the world that benefit from the weather that's brought by El Nino. So, for example, the U.S. Midwest usually has more favourable growing conditions, which helps to offset, say, 
lower grains output in, in India or Australia at the global level. The other point to make is that we, we're not sure yet about the severity of this El Nino, and that makes a big difference to its impact, the severity of it and the duration of it, how long it lasts. So obviously, the longer it lasts, the more damaging it is. Another point I think is also worth making is that every El Nino is different. And the starting point for this El Nino has given us a little bit more cause for concern. So, for example, 2022 was a very dry year in Asia. And so the prospect of El Nino arriving now and acute, cumulative years of dry growing conditions suggests that it could have a, a, maybe a larger impact than, than even normally. And this is the impacts largely through hydropower, isn't it? A couple of ways, really. I mean, obviously, um, agriculture needs rain, so yields were, were already low last year, and groundwater levels of course, and things are, are, are low, so agriculture has been to struggle, undeniably. But it does have, you're quite right, massive implications for hydropower. So you're the climate expert, and it's not great for the climate either, because with low levels of hydropower, it's more likely that countries are going to turn to fossil fuels and in the case of China and India, more likely to turn to coal to offset the shortfall of hydropower. Perhaps I can ask you where you see the link between El Niños and the work you do on climate. And you know, is this something that we should be conscious of, that we, we're already getting warmer and the world's going to find it more difficult to cope with these El Niños? Yeah, well, we're seeing this El Nino period go hand in hand with record global temperatures. From what I understand from scientists, they, I think that the confluence of regular ongoing El Nino events in the future, alongside a backdrop of global warming, is not going to make El Nino events more frequent. So there will continue this five to seven year duration and periodicity you mentioned. But there does seem to be a lot of agreement that the impacts of moderate to severe El Nino events in the future will become even stronger. So I think that's one acute risk to focus on for where an El Nino meets climate change. And, and I mean, this is not an intangible threat now. You can see quite clearly how this will play out in terms of human well-being, but also particularly economically. I think the bigger point that we're stressing is the extent to which the same countries that you'd worry about in terms of economic performance when it comes to periods of acute heat, you know, like we've, we've seen over the past month or so, really pretty much mirrors the sort of countries you worry about if we weren't able to limit the rise in the global average temperature over the coming decades as well. So you're really talking about India and parts of Southeast Asia that seem most at risk of at more severe El Nino events in the future. I mean, this is mainly a reflection of the fact that these are the economies whose share of people working in the economy are largest in the agricultural sectors. Um, and also tourism is another key channel for which yeah, it's not difficult to, to see how periods of acute heat stress and just increasing temperatures over the decades will be bad for tourism and countries that rely on that very heavily. So turning back to you, Caroline, I mean, a lot of the work you see about El Nino is focused on its implications on crop yields and growing conditions, that sort of thing. And I was really interested to see you warn about the extent to which this could lead to things like trade bans, particularly on rice, which could ultimately amplify the, the impacts of the, the weather event into something more geopolitical in, in nature. Is that something where you think is a, is a real risk for India, the politicians stepping in? I think it is a risk. And India has you know, it's got past form, if you like, when it's very conscious of food security. And as soon as there, there are fears that, that domestic supply is going to be affected, they do tend to limit exports as one of the first things they do. So we've had total bans on non-basmati rice in the past, most recently, I think, 2008, 
And there's talk again of it, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if that happens, if, if the El Nino turns out to be quite severe and Indian politicians with, with elections coming up are worried about food security and prices. And we've seen almost doubling in rice prices in the past where restrictions have happened. So, I mean, this is, this is a big impact. Well, India is the, is the world's largest exporter normally. So, yes, we can't underplay how serious that would be for rice repair. And another thing I've seen you talk about is that the concentration of crops being a particular risk. You know, obviously we're talking about tendencies with El Nino here, but cocoa in particular, the concentration of production of cocoa is bad news for chocolate lovers, potentially. Yes, over 70% of the world's cocoa comes from a few countries in West Africa. Now, West Africa be at the epicentre, if you like, of an El Nino but it can bring dry weather. And there are actually other weather phenomena that are more likely to seriously damage the cocoa crop. But it does, it does usually mean lower production from, from West Africa. That's a, an important point about the impact on agriculture of El Nino. It, it'll affect those commodities most where production is quite concentrated. And, and there are quite a lot of those. So there are trop, what we call tropical commodities. So they only grow in the tropics, the areas that are most affected. And these would include, it includes cocoa, it includes coffee. So over 70% of the world's palm oil comes from Southeast Asia. So it's, these are the ones that we're sort of watching out for that, that we could potentially see some price impact. And one thing we've been stressing is that from a developed world perspective, the impacts of disruption and all those sort of materials in terms of the overall inflation basket is likely to be pretty muted. We've put research out there suggesting that a severe El Nino could add about 0.1% to advanced economy inflation basket from food um, impacts and maybe maybe another 0.4% once you take a, account the potential impacts on energy markets from the disruption in Southeast Asia you mentioned earlier. That was David Oxley talking to Caroline Bain about El Nino, climate risks and policy responses. I'll link to our coverage of the India rice export ban and all of our analysis about the risks around El Nino on the podcast page. Finally this week, here's an exclusive clip from our drop-in held right after that better-than-expected June CPI report for the UK. Paul Dales, our chief UK economist, led the briefing with Ruth Gregory and Ashley Webb from our UK teams and Jonas Goldsman from our markets team. The clip begins with Ruth talking about what the latest data say about UK wage dynamics and why our UK team responded to that CPI report by raising their forecast for bank rate by another 25 basis points to 5.5%. We have seen some some downward trends in, for example, the KPMG, the REC survey of measure of pay for new permanent hires, and that typically leads pay growth, headline pay growth by about a year. But this real stickiness that we're seeing in average wage growth and the price and wage expectations, according to the Bank of England's decision-maker panel, um, they have been stickier than the bank expected. So our feeling is, I think that the bank will really want to see perhaps a string of inflation prints that are at the very least in line with or softer than its um, expectations before it really starts to feel confident enough that it's done enough to get the to get wage growth down uh, to rates that are consistent with the 2% target. The labour market is loosening by enough to bring inflation all the way back down to 2%. So we think that Bank of England does have a bit more work to do and that the peak may be somewhere around 5.5%. Uh, and uh, I mean, this is a long way away, but say, for example, our forecast is right, bank rate peaks at around 5.5% sometime in the next you know, two, three months or so. When do you think rates would come down. What's what's our latest thinking on that? Can you just let people know? 
Yeah, so we think that the Bank of England, it's still likely to be hiking even as the Fed's tightening cycle draws to a close. And we think that the Bank of England will have to keep rates at at that level, at least until the second half of 2024, given that, you know, the, the UK does seem to be struggling with a sort of higher and longer lasting inflation problem than elsewhere. I guess we have seen the easing in, in overall inflation and core CPI inflation, meaning that the UK is no longer such a global outlier. But at 6.9% core inflation in the UK, it's still two percentage points higher than in the US. It's still 1.5 percentage points higher than in the uh, core inflation in the Eurozone, for example. So we do think that the UK will you know, continue to have higher rates of inflation than elsewhere for a while yet. But I mean, the positive is that at least overall and core inflation are now following the global uh, trend. So perhaps we're slightly less concerned by the UK experience than we perhaps were before the figures were released. Um Jonas, what about forecast gilts? I mean, presumably you're a, a little bit happier there. We've been saying for a while that we think the uh, 10-year gilt yield might fall from around 4.2% now to closer to 3% actually by the end of end of next year. Is that uh, good news for you at the moment? Well, I think it's good news for, for gilt markets more broadly. You don't want to put too much on, on one data point, uh, but it sort of adds to a broader pattern that we've seen across other countries and bond markets as well. So it does look like maybe the fever is breaking in, in rates markets to, to some extent. And there's a sizable gap in, in the rates curve, which is where we think that's going to come down towards, you know, VOE is going to do maybe a couple more hikes as opposed to three or four that's in the curve and then maybe start to, once they start to cut, probably cut by more than than what's currently discounted. So I think we're, we're a lot more comfortable with that view now than, than say a week ago. Um, I mean, if you take a step back, it, 3% sounds like a big fool from here, but it's actually roughly where we started the year on the 10-year, if you look at the 10-year yield. yield. Uh, and it's roughly consistent, I would say, with where we see long-term neutral rates in the UK. So I would characterize our forecast for, for gilts, and then this is true for, for, for bonds and, and treasuries as well, as essentially a gradual normalization um, back towards uh, what you might think of as a, a long-term normal rate, if you're normal or neutral rate, after the turmoil that we've seen in rates markets over the past couple of years. Now, there are probably still a few bumps in that road, but I think data points like today or last week's US CPI number that makes us more confident that, that we are on that path towards normalization. Yeah, I mean, and part of our view with this is that we do think that the effect of higher interest rates will weigh on economic activity and generate a, a relatively mild recession later this year going into next year and that effect is why we think wage growth and core inflation will slow one question here which is a really interesting one ash is that rather than wage growth slowing because of let's say the bank of england bearing down on demand is there a possibility that wage growth could slow because there's a, a big increase in the supply of labour? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we have definitely been seeing some recovery in the supply of labour recently as labour market participation has ticked up. So I do think there is that, you know, it could go some way into into uh, easing wage growth. And it probably does have a bit further to run too. But when you look at labour market inactivity, uh, so those who are not able to work or, or don't want to work, the number of people not able to work due to long-term sick is is still very high. And long NHS waiting lists probably mean that that is unlikely to change very quickly. So people aren't able to get back into the workforce. So although it probably will help 
to some extent in reducing wage growth. Some of the easing and wage growth that we're forecasting does reflect an increase in supply. We do think labour market participation is going to be held back for a while yet until the NHS waiting list come down, which you know hopefully should increase labour market participation even more. But given we think it's going to be held back to some extent, we do think most of the adjustment, therefore, will have to come via, you know, as you say, Paul, bearing down on, on demand to get wage growth all the way down to 2%. So we think it could go some way, but we think that we, it's not going to get us all the way down to wage growth consistent with the 2% inflation target. So, yeah, we, we, we think that demand is still going to have to be the, the bigger lever here. That was Ash Webb, Paul Dales, Ruth Gregory and Jonas Goldsman briefing clients after the June UK CPI report. Learn more about our drop-ins on the events page of our website, capitaleconomics.com. We hold several of these each week. They're just one way that clients can engage directly with the Economist team about what's happening in macro and markets. CE Advance has even more ways to engage with the Economist team to inform your investment decisions. Find out more about our premium platform on our website. But that's it for this week. We're back next week with a special conversation all about the rise of China's electric vehicle industry. So watch out for that. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.